And I invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting today in verse 13. This is a part of what we call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest message ever preached, and preached for sure with the greatest authority by the world's greatest teacher. We're taking at least a few months to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've already dedicated three Sundays to Jesus' sermon, and we're just 12 verses in. Jesus has gone up on a mountainside and is teaching a great crowd that have begun following Him, and He's invited them to live the good life as His disciples, to live the good life as followers of Jesus. Jesus has invited them, and therefore us, to follow Him and to live lives that are blessed. Live lives that are full of well-being. In a word, the word we've been using, flourishing. But as we've seen the last two weeks, the good life may not be what you might expect it to be. The flourishing are those who are needy, sad, lowly, unsatisfied, and even, he says, persecuted. Those are the the flourishing. Jesus' teaching surprises us. It's counterintuitive. It's downright strange to our ears. Kind of like two different sounds you don't expect to go together. Jesus' teaching comes from the kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom that challenges all the kingdoms that we're familiar with. Jesus is the king of that kingdom of heaven, which is a very foreign country to our experience. It's like nothing we have ever seen or heard, except in echoes. We were made for this kingdom, and we don't even know it. We long for this kingdom, even though we have not yet seen it. But now that Jesus has come, and now that the kingdom is being revealed, we are being made ready for it. You know, that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings, getting ready for the kingdom together. To be ready for this kingdom means repentance. Jesus said, repent, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So from the get-go, Jesus is calling us to change. And the rest of his sermon will rock our boats even more. He wants to turn our lives upside down. Those of you who were in Sunday school this morning, how many times did it say that? Just totally getting us ready for this this morning. Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down to fit the right side up kingdom that we've never seen before. You cannot receive this sermon. You cannot receive this message and stay the same. Now today we're only going to move the needle four verses. Okay, Just, just a short little paragraph this morning. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. Now, they're very familiar verses. They're very familiar verses, very famous ones. You you may have memorized them or sung songs about them when you were growing up, which is awesome, by the way. These are very good words to memorize. But today, I just want to back up and read from the beginning of the sermon through our passage for today. Because I realized something this past week something big that I have never noticed before never even thought about before it was right there in front of me but I've never seen it are you ready for my massive uh, realization are you ready for it verse 13 comes right after 
verse 12. Yeah, I know. I know. I never saw that before. Pretty impressive, huh? Verse 13 comes right after verse 12. What I mean is, who is the you in verse 13? Who is Jesus talking about? To whom is Jesus talking? It's the same people. The same people that Jesus has been talking about and talking to from verses 3 through 12. It's the same you. The Beatitudes people. The blessed people. The the strangely enough, they're flourishing people. That's who Jesus is talking about and to in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 when he tells them who they are. Our sermon title today is simply, You Are The. And we're going to complete that sentence in two obvious ways. The, The two ways that Jesus does in this short paragraph. I've preached on this passage before, several times, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, but I've never grasped that these words flow out of the Beatitudes. They don't exist on their own in some contextless, memory verse kind of way. The you of verse 13 and the you of verse 14, the your of verse verse 16, they're the same people who are called, strangely called blessed in verses 3 through 12. So let's back up there and then read through our passage for today. You ready? Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Congratulations go to the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. How good it is to be those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, You, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, everything I'm going to say, we've sung this morning. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is above. All glory be to Christ. May he get the glory from the preached word. And Lord, help us to hear it. 
Help us to hear what you're saying in this passage with fresh ears. Many of us have read that passage, sung it, studied it, preached it many times. Help us to hear it anew. Not something new about it, as if we're bringing something new to it, but to hear it freshly and to hear what, it is, what you are saying to our hearts and how it wants to affect our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Did you hear it this, this morning as I went from 12 to 13? How 13, flow, about 13 flowed out of verse 12? I never saw that before. The you of verse 13 is the same you as verse 11. The you that is blessed even though, or because of, being persecuted for following Jesus is the same people who have just been described as living out the upside-down good life described in the Beatitudes. This is who is salt and who is light. It's Jesus' disciples, the followers of Jesus, those that have become citizens of the kingdom of heaven by faith and are living a different kind of life now. So I've got two points for you this morning, and you've already guessed what they are. You probably already filled in your bulletin, right? Here's number one. You are the salt of the earth. Right? That's what Jesus says there in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, notice, Jesus says this is what you are. Okay, You are the salt of the earth. He's not saying that we need to become the salt of the earth. He's saying that you are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth already. That is, if you are the same you that he's been talking about all along. If you're the poor in spirit. If you're everything that we saw in the Beatitudes, this is also you. You're the salt of the earth. Remember last week I said that he looked his disciples in the eye when he said verse 11. He said, you're going to be persecuted, but rejoice. Well, he's still looking us in the eye. And he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. Want to know who you are? Doesn't it help to know your identity? Right? I I know who I am. Right? You are the salt of the earth. Now what does that mean? That's the question, right? What, What does he mean by that? You know, it is a strange thing to say. We've gotten used to that phrase, salt of the earth, but it's it's kind of strange. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean what we sometimes mean when we call somebody the salt of the earth, meaning that they're kind of honest and humble and homey kind of person, kind of down to earth. Jesus is saying something different than that. He's not saying the disciples are down to earth. He's saying that they are like salt for the earth. By the way, I don't think he means salt for the earth like the the ground here, the dirt. He means the earth, the world. It's parallel to what he says in verse 14 about the world. You are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, what does salt do? Flavor, yeah. And it melts the ice on the sidewalk, right? And it could be used as a fertilizer. You know, there have been at least 11 different interpretations of why Jesus uses salt in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one. Here's a salt shaker that I stole from the Wild Game Dinner last night. All right? And just like we we heard here, we use salt to flavor our food. I even brought a little bowl so Cindy wouldn't get mad at me. Okay? Yeah. I've come a long way. Nope, not pouring water all over the stage. Just salt in the bowl. 
We use salt on our food to flavor it. That could be part of what is meant here. However, I don't think that's the biggest reason they used salt in the ancient world. What salt was mainly used for in that culture, that pre-industrial culture, that before-refrigerators culture, was to preserve meat and also to purify things. They would kind of wash with salt to purify something. Salt was a preservative and a purifier more than a seasoning. Now, it was flavoring too. So Jesus could be saying that we give flavoring to the world. But I think that what Jesus is emphasizing is that Christ followers deployed into the world are a preservative and a purifying influence on the world. They hold back corruption. At least, we're supposed to. I think the main point of just using salt is that it has an effect. It has an influence. It it does something. When you add salt to something, things happen, right? Not so much when you add it to a bowl, but you you add it to a dish, it changes the dish, doesn't it? You ever put too much salt in? You're like, woo, yeah. One time I made, what was it, baked oatmeal in our home, and I put in three tablespoons instead of three teaspoons of baked oatmeal. And my family, they're, they're taking a bite, and they're like, okay, Dad, we're, we're going to try to smile while we eat this, but no, this is really not good, right? Salt has an effect on what you put it into. When you add salt to the meat, it doesn't corrupt so quickly. So Jesus is saying that his followers will have a positive, preserving effect on the world. But only, he says, if they they don't lose their saltiness. Did you see that in verse 13? You are the salt of the earth, but, he says, but, listen to Jesus, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, technically, salt... N-A-C-L, for you chemists, right? Am I saying that right? Can't be unsalted, can't be changed chemically. Something that, is, uh, something that is salt as a chemical compound stays salt as a chemical compound. But something that is called salt can start to get additives and impurities and contamination and not be worth calling salt any longer or worth using any longer. Like if you said, last night if you were at the dinner and you said, Please pass the salt, Pastor Matt. And I pass this over to you, and you put it on your excellent venison that was being passed around, and you started to eat it. And you realized that I had added pepper and uh, paprika and cinnamon and cumin to the salt. There's still salt in there. It's still the salt. Pass the salt, right? What if I added some dirt in there, too? still the salt past the salt pastor matt it's still the salt but it's lost its saltiness it's no longer pure salt the greek there for loses its saltiness is actually something like becomes foolish as if the salt has lost its mind and gone off the righteous track salt not being salt anymore can salt like that have any positive purifying effect no useless it's worthless it's no longer good for anything except something to walk on he's saying that we're supposed to be different we're supposed to be pure jesus's followers are different we are like salt that has an effect on the on the earth but we're not supposed to become just like the rest of the earth 
We can't preserve or purify anything if we allow ourselves to be contaminated. I don't know about you, but I I would hate for Jesus to tell me that I'm basically a useless disciple. I'd hate for Jesus to tell me that I'm a worthless disciple because I'm really no disciple at all. Well, you say you're salt, but what's in your shaker? Salt sodium chloride. Look at you. You're not sodium chloride. That's not you. You're everything but. You see what I'm saying? What does it mean to be salt? It means to live out the values of the kingdom. It means to be disciples of Jesus. It means to live out, catch this, this is my big thing this week, the virtues of the Beatitudes. Because verse 13 comes after verse 12. You want to know if you're salt? Well, are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over sin and suffering? Do you choose meekness? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you merciful? Are you pursuing purity of heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you persecuted because of righteousness, because of following Jesus? Then you're salt. You're sodium chloride. You're the genuine article. Jesus says, stay that way. But what if your life looks like the opposite of the Beatitudes? The the anti-Beatitudes. What if you are prideful? What if you're unfazed by sin and suffering? You don't mourn. What, What if you grab what you want when you want it instead of being meek? What if you don't care about righteousness? You can take it or leave it. You're not hungry for it. You're not thirsty for it. What if you refuse to show mercy? Well, they don't deserve it. I'm not going to give it to them. What if you grasp impurity to your heart? What if you love fighting and you harbor bitterness? What if you run around? and What if you hide and run away from persecution, pretending you don't know Jesus? Well, then you're not salt. And as disciples go, you're not worth very much. You see how Jesus is calling us to live out the good life that he has just laid out for the disciples? The key application to this is is very simple. Are you salty? Not like a pirate. Not like a sarcastic person. That's what people tend to mean when they say, stay salty, my friends. But like a Beatitudes person. Do verses 3 through 12 describe me? Am I salty? Am I salty at work? Am I salty in my relationships? Am I salty in my neighborhood? Am I salty in my family? And what do I need to do, if I am, to stay that way? Because it's only as we're different from the world that we have a positive effect on the world. I think that's even more clear in verse, verses 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus says the same thing, but with another and even more striking image. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. You! Hey, you! You you there! He's looking you in the eye and he says, you want to know who you are? You're the light of the world. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? Gospel of John tells us that. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. So we're lights by derivation. right? But it's Jesus who tells us that. He says, you are the light of the world. We belong to the light, so we are children of the light. 
Notice again, he doesn't say, become the light of the world. Come on, work real hard. Figure out how to be light and do it. Turn on that light. Come on, you can do it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are. By gift, by grace, you are the light of the world. What is the purpose of light? Well, it's to shine, right? Light in the Bible means illuminating. It means purity. It means truth. It means revelation. It means glory. It's making the, God, the glory of God visible. That's why he says, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It stands out. It shines. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to live in a culture where there's almost no light at night. You know, just starlight, a couple candles. And then you're coming up on a city and there's a whole city with lights on. Oh, now I can see something. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The whole point of light is to shine, right? So the other day, this is my phone. The other day, I used the uh, flashlight on my phone. See if I can make it work. Did it work? You see the flashlight? So I'm, I have to go out in the dark at night to go get something. Uh, this is before we... I'll put a light in the shed. I'm going to go out in the shed to get it, all right? So I turn on the flashlight on my phone, and I, you see what kind of cover I have? I got a cover like this. So I turn it on. Okay, I got it on. I'm like, you just can't see anything. What is, what is wrong with this? Oh, oh, how dumb is that, right? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. How dumb is that? You light a light, and then you... Put something over it so you can't see anything from it? That's not what the light is for. The light is for shining. It's for showing things. It's a useless light if you do it like that. The whole point, this is what Jesus is saying, the whole point of being a disciple is to shine for Jesus. That's the whole point of being a disciple. It's to shine for Jesus. In the same way, look at verse 16. In the same way, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now here's where my big insight comes to play again. What are these good deeds he's talking about in verse 16? What are these good things that we're supposed to be doing that shine the light of Jesus? These are not good deeds by being what we don't do. I know that's too many negatives there. Like, it's not the good deeds of what sins we don't commit. They don't cuss. They don't drink. They don't cheat. Right? It's not, it's not talking about that. It's the positive things that Jesus' disciples do because they're Jesus' disciples. In other words, it's living out the Beatitudes. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's being merciful. It's being peacemakers. It's choosing meekness. That sort of thing. That's what he's talking about. This flows right out of the Beatitudes. The word for good and good deeds in verse 16 is kalos. And it means beautiful. Not just good, but beautiful. It means morally beautiful actions. These things Jesus' followers do are morally beautiful. They shine. Now sometimes they're going to do that, and what are they going to do? What are they going to get? They're going to get kicked in the teeth, right? 
This just followed where Jesus says, you live for righteousness, you live it out, and you're going to be persecuted. He told you to expect that and to rejoice when it comes. But verse 16 tells a little bit of a different tale. Jesus also says that some people will see our good deeds and they'll praise our Father in heaven. I love that phrase, Father in heaven. That's the first time that we see it in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see it more. That's a mind-blowing phrase. We get used to calling God our Father or Father in heaven, but that's something that Jesus, it's new with Jesus, and it's a gift from Jesus, and it's amazing. We'll see it more. Did you notice that the Father gets the credit for our living out these good deeds? Do you see that in verse 16? Isn't that interesting? In the next chapter, some people will try to do some good deeds to get praise for themselves. Well, that never works. Or if, you, if it does, that's all you get. It's just praise from, from other people. But Jesus is saying that we should let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Now, of course, that means that we can't hide. We can't run away from following Jesus. Hide it under a bushel? No, right? We've got to let it shine. I, know, I don't know about you, but when Jesus started to promise that persecution in verses 10, 11, 12, I started to think about how to protect myself from that persecution. Because I don't like pain. But Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth. That means we've got to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. And Jesus says that we're the light of the world. He doesn't say we're just the light in the church building. He says, we're the light out there. We can't hide away and pretend we don't know Jesus. Even if it means getting hurt for it. Even if it means getting hurt for it. Jesus is calling us forward. No retreat to boldly follow him and live out the values and virtues and norms and culture of the kingdom of heaven. So the application for this is basically, are you shining? Right? Are you? You are the light of the world. Are you acting like it? The world will sit up and take notice when we actually live differently than they do. For example, take our hide the word verse for right now. I know I skipped it when we were singing. It says, but I tell you, love your... And pray for those who... Live that out. Do that for a while. Live out that command to love your enemies in real time, in real life. Not just on paper, and certainly not in your own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. But do it by faith. And the world will go, what's going on over there? The world will sit up and take notice. And first they might hate you because of it. Because it's nothing like they've ever seen before. But then they're going to say, What is their Father in heaven doing? Praise Him. Be the salt. Be the light. Not by being flashy, but by being Jesus-y. And the world will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know, I am whatever the righteous version of proud is of all of you. I love watching you put on something like the wild game dinner last night. All the work that goes into that. Food, tables, chairs, sound equipment, greeters, servers, door prizes, and all the time spent, all the time you invested. 
And while you're doing it, such good attitudes. I love to go into the kitchen and they're laughing and carrying on and they're calling each other turkeys and all kinds of good stuff like that. And, and big smiles as you put out one more plate of food. And you're hoping, did we have the right amount of food for the group that came? And we had the exact right amount of food for the group that came. And what do you get out of it? Well, you're being meek when you serve like that. And you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness when you want men and women to get right with God, to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And when you serve like that, you are being peacemakers, hoping to bring people into peace with God and then peace with others. And somebody might laugh at you for putting on a wild game dinner like that. They might insult you for doing that because it's not a fundraiser. Oh, you're having a fundraiser? No, it's free. Well, don't you put out a, 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 a pass the plate? No. We're not going to stop somebody if they want to give. But we aren't doing it to raise money. We don't make any money at it all. Well, what are you doing all that if you don't make any money? Blessed are you if you put on a wild game dinner for people just out of love and a desire for them to know Jesus. Flourishing you are. Well done. Good on you. You are salt. You are light. Stay salty and let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise, not you, but your Father in heaven.